0: Genevieve Lloyd, Man of Reason, Introduction The claim that reason is male, in the context of current philosophical debate, must inevitably conjure up the idea that what is true or reasonable for men might be not at all so for women. Contemporary philosophical concern about our ideals of rationality is, not surprisingly, Largely preoccupied with issues of relativism, with the possibility that truth might be relative to particular cultures or to periods of time. Relativism is a major challenge to reason's traditional claims to universality, to its capacity to yield ultimately true representations of one real world. In the context of such concern with beliefs and truth, to allege that reason – despite its pretensions to be gender-free, might, after all, be thoroughly male, may well seem preposterous. To suggest that the celebrated objectivity and universality of our canons of rational belief might not, in fact, transcend even sexual difference, seems to go beyond even the more outrageous versions of cultural relativism. It seems highly implausible to claim that what is true or reasonable varies according to what sex we are, but the implausibility of such sexual relativism can mask other, no less important, respects in which reason is indeed male. There is more at stake in assessing our ideals of reason than questions of the relativity of truth. Reason has figured in Western culture not only in the assessment of our beliefs, but also in the assessment of character. It's incorporated not just into our criteria for truth, but also into our understanding of what it is to be a person at all, of the requirement that must be met to be a good person, and of the proper relations between our status as knowers and the rest of our lives." Past philosophical reflection on what is distinctive about human life and on what should be the priorities of a well-lived life has issued in-character ideals centred on the idea of reason. And the supposed universality and neutrality of these ideals can be seriously questioned. It is with the maleness of these character ideals... The Maleness of the Man of Reason, that this book is primarily concerned. The maleness of the man of reason, I will try to show, is no superficial linguistic bias. It lies deep in our philosophical tradition. This is not to say that women have their own truth, or that there are distinctively female criteria for reasonable belief. It is, however to make a claim which is no less a scandal to the pretensions of reason. Gender, after all, is one of these things from which truly rational thought is supposed to proceed. Reason is taken to express the real nature of the mind, in which, as Augustine put it, there is no sex. The aspiration to a reason common to all Transcending the contingent historical circumstances which differentiate minds from one another lies at the very heart of our philosophical heritage. The conviction that minds, insofar as they are rational, are fundamentally alike, underlies many of our moral and political ideals. And the aspiration has inspired, too, our ideals of objective knowledge, the claim repudiated by relativism, that reason delivers us to a single objective truth has often been substantiated by appeal to reason's supposed transcendence of all that differentiates minds from one another. Our trust in reason that knows no sex has, I will argue, been largely self-deceiving, To bring to the surface the implicit maleness of our ideals of reason is not necessarily to adopt a sexual relativism about rational belief and truth, but it does have important implications for our contemporary understanding of gender difference. It means, for example, that there are not only practical reasons but also conceptual ones for the conflicts many women experience between reason and femininity. The obstacles to female cultivation of reason spring to a large extent from the fact that our ideals of reason have historically incorporated an exclusion of the feminine, and that femininity itself has been partly constituted through such processes of exclusion. The historical treatment I will offer of the maleness of reason bears too on the problems of adequately assessing the ideal. Current in some contemporary feminist thought, of a distinctively female thought style. A full treatment of the complexities of these issues lies beyond the scope of this book. What emerges about the historical maleness of reason, however, does help to illuminate some of the perplexity these questions induce in men and women alike. Chapter 1 Reason, Science, and the domination of matter. Introduction In a striking passage in The Second Sex, Simone de Beauvoir suggested that male activity, in prevailing over the confused forces of life, has subdued both nature and woman. The association between nature and woman to which de Beauvoir he alludes, has a long history in the self-definitions of Western culture. Nietzsche, with characteristic overstatement, suggested in a fragment on the Greek woman that woman's closeness to nature makes her play to the state the role that sleep plays for man. In her nature lies a healing power which replaces that which has been used up the beneficial rest in which everything immoderate confines itself, the eternal same, by which the excessive and the surplus regulate themselves in her future generation dreams. Woman is more closely related to nature than man, and in all her essentials she remains ever herself. Culture is with her always something external, a something which does not touch the kernel that is eternally faithful to nature. But in associating woman with sleep, nature only pushed to its limits a long-standing antithesis between femaleness and active male culture. The pursuit of rational knowledge has been a major strand in Western culture’s definitions of itself as opposed to nature. It is for us in many ways, equitable with cultures transforming or transcending of nature. Rational knowledge has been construed as a transcending transformation or control of the natural forces and the feminine has been associated with what rational knowledge transcends, dominates, or simply leaves behind. Femininity and Greek Theories of Knowledge From the beginnings of philosophical thought, femaleness was symbolically associated with what reason supposedly left behind. The dark powers of the earth goddesses' immersion in unknown forces associated with mysterious female powers. The early Greeks saw women's capacity to conceive as connecting them with the fertility of nature. As Plato later expressed the thought, women imitate the earth. The transition from the fertility consciousness associated with cults of the earth goddesses to the rites of rational gods and goddesses was legendary in early Greek literature. It was dramatised, for example, in legends of the succession of cults at the site of the Oracle of Delphi. Incorporated into the prologue of Aeschylus's *Humanities* and elaborated as a story of conquest in Euripides' Ephigenia in Taurus. Euripides' version presented the transition as a triumph of the fourth forces of reason over the darkness of the earlier earth mysteries. The infant Apollo slays the python which guards the old earth oracle, thereby breaking the power of the earth goddess, She takes revenge by sending up dream oracles to cloud the minds of men with a dark dream truth. But these voices of the night are stilled through the intervention of Zeus, leaving the forces of reason installed at Delphi. Reason leaves behind the forces associated with female power. What had to be shed in developing culturally prized rationality was from the start, symbolically associated with femaleness. These symbolic associations lingered in later refinements of the idea and the ideals of reason. Maleness remained associated with a clear, determinate mode of thought, femaleness with a vague and indeterminate. In the Pythagorean Table of Opposites, formulated in the 6th century BCE, Femaleness was explicitly linked with the unbounded, the vague, the indeterminate, as against the bounded, the precise and the clearly determined. The Pythagoreans saw the world as a mixture of principles associated with determinate form, seen as good, and others associated with formlessness, the unlimited, irregular or disorderly. Which were seen as bad or inferior. There were ten such contrasts in the table limit, unlimited, odd, even, one, many, right, left, male, female, rest, motion, straight, curved, light, dark, good, bad, square, and oblong. Thus, male and female, like the other contrasted terms, did not here function as straightforwardly descriptive classifications. Male, like the other terms on its side of the table, was construed as superior to its opposite. And the basis for this superiority was its association with the primary Pythagorean contrast between form and formlessness. Associations between maleness and clear determination or definition persisted in articulations of the form-matter distinction in later Greek philosophical thought. Maleness was aligned with active, determinate form, femaleness with passive, indeterminate matter. The scene for these alignments was set by the traditional Greek understanding of sexual reproduction, which saw the father as providing the formative principle, the real causal force of generation, while the mother provided only the matter which received form or determination and nourished what had been produced by the father. In the Eumenides, Aeschylus has Apollo exploit this contrast in the affirmation of father right against mother right in the moral assessment of Orestes' murder and his mother Clytemnus. Nestra, in vengeance of the murder of his father Agamemnon. The mother to the child that man calls hers is no true life begetter but a nurse of live seed. Tis the sower of the seed alone begetteth. Woman comes at need, a stranger to hold safe in trust and love that bud of her life, save when God above wills that it die. Plato, in the Timaeus, compared the role of limiting form to that of the father, and the role of the indefinite matter to the mother. And Aristotle also compared the form matter relation to that of male and female. This comparison is not of any great significance for either of them in their explicit articulations of the nature of knowledge, but it meant that the very nature of knowledge was implicitly associated with the extrusion of what was symbolically associated with the feminine. To see the implications of this, we must look in some detail at the way the formatter distinction operated in Plato's theory of knowledge. Knowledge, for Plato, involved a relation within human beings that replicates a relation in the rest of the world between knowable form and unknowable matter. Matching that separation on the side of the knower was a sharp distinction between mind, the principle which understands the rational, and matter, which has no part in knowledge. The knowing mind... Like the forms, which are its objects, transcends matter. Knowledge involved a correspondence between rational mind and equally rational forms. The idea that the world is itself suffused with reason was present in much earlier Greek thought. But Plato greatly sophisticated it. In earlier thought, the intelligible object of knowledge was not sharply distinguished from the intelligence which knew it. The notion of logos applied equally to both. Plato recasts the idea of the world as mind imbued in terms of the form-matter distinction. It was only in respect of the form that the world was rational. The identification of rational thought and rational universe was not for him an unreflective assumption. It was achieved by deliberately downgrading matter to the realm of the non-rational, fortuitous and disorderly, while preserving for form the correspondence with rational knowing mind. In the Timaeus, Plato pictured this correspondence as internalisation in human beings of the rational principle in accordance with which the world was fashioned. The relationship of the world soul to the world is mirrored in that of the rational soul to the body which is subject to it. In the mythology of the Timaeus, a cosmic reason hovers round the sensible world influencing human minds. Necessity has been subjected to reason in the creation of the world, and human minds can participate in this reason. When they do so, they apprehend self-existent ideas, unperceived by sense. Mind, in this special sense, is the attribute of the gods and of very few men. In the mythology... Plato incorporated into the Timaeus, there are intimations of a gender differentiation with respect to the exalted conception of cosmic reason. The reflection of the order and reason of the universe is supposed to be less clear in the souls of women than in those of men. Their souls originate from the fallen souls of men who were lacking in reason. Hence, they are closer to the turbulence of non-rational accretions to the soul. But what is most important for our purposes about Plato's treatment of knowledge is not this, but rather something less explicitly associated with sexual difference. It emerges in his version of mind-matter dualism, matter, with its overtones of femaleness, is seen as something to be transcended in the search for rational knowledge. It was the relation of master to slave rather than that of man to woman that provided the metaphors of dominance in terms of which the Greeks articulated their understanding of knowledge. But this Platonic theme occurs throughout the subsequent history of Western thought in ways that both exploit and reinforce the long-standing associations between maleness and form and femaleness and matter. In his early works, still strongly influenced by Socrates, Plato construed the dualism between intellect and matter as a simple dichotomy between a unitary soul and the body. Here, his thought again reflected earlier Greek attitudes to matter. The polarisation between body and a supposedly immortal soul figured in the religious rites associated with Orphanism and Pythagorean cults. They conceived the soul as a fallen daemon, trapped in the disdained body. This soul was the bearer of humankind's potential divinity. It was reincarnated in a succession of lives until it managed to escape into a godlike immortality. And the process, they thought, could be assisted by the performance of ritual ascetic purifications to purge the soul of gross intrusions of body. Plato transformed these ascetic doctrines, retelling them in terms of the cultivation of reason the bearer of immortality became in this version the rational soul, and its freedom for the body was to be gained through the cultivation of rational thought. In the Phaedo, Plato has Socrates, in his speech on his approaching death, present the intellectual life as a purging of the rational soul from the follies of the body. The philosopher's life, prepares his soul for release from its prison house at death. His soul despises the body and flees from it to pursue a pure and absolute being with pure intellect alone. Reason enables the soul to go away to the pure and eternal and immortal and unchangeable to which she is akin. The senses, in contrast, drag the soul back to the realm of the changeable, where she wanders about blindly and becomes confused and dizzy, like a drunken man from dealing with the things that are ever-changing. The soul, which cultivates reason during life, can expect at death to be released from error, folly, fear and fierce passions, living with the divine and the immortal and the wise. The soul which does not pursue this deliverance and purification during life is, in contrast, defiled by contact with the body and is at death, weighed down and dragged back to the visible world, taking root in another body like a seed which is sown. During life, Plato concluded, the godlike rational soul should rule over the slave-like mortal body. In Plato's later thought, the simplicity of this subjection of the body to mind gives way to a more complex location of the non-rational, not outside a soul, which is of itself entirely rational, but within the soul as a source of inner conflict. On this later view, The struggle is between a rational part of the soul and other non-rational parts, which should be subordinated to it. Later, Judaic and Christian thinkers elaborated this platonic theme in ways that connected it explicitly with the theme of man's rightful domination of woman. There is another respect in which Plato's use of metaphors of dominance differed from later developments. In his theory, the dominance relation is seen as holding within the knower. The rightful dominance of mind over body, or of superior over inferior aspects of the soul, brings the knower into the required correspondence relations with the forms, which are in turn seen as superior to matter. On this model, knowledge is a contemplation of the internal forms in abstraction from unknowable, non-rational matter. The symbolism of dominance and subordination occurs in the articulation of the process by which knowledge is gained. Knowledge itself is not seen as a domination of its objects. But as an enraptured contemplation of them. Plato's picture has been highly influential in the formation of our contemporary ways of thinking about knowledge, but overlaid on it is a very different way of construing knowledge in terms of dominance. The model which receives its most explicit formulation and has its most explicit associations with the male female distinction is in the 17th century, in the thought of Francis Bacon. On this model, knowledge itself is construed as a domination of nature. This brings with it a different understanding of knowledge and its objects. To see the significance of the change, it will be helpful first to look briefly at the transformation of Plato's version of the form-matter distinction in the thought of Aristotle. Aristotle transformed Plato's form-matter distinction and its role in theory of knowledge. And with this transformation, the mind-body relationship also underwent a crucial change. In the metaphysics, Aristotle hailed Plato's sophistication of the notion of form as a great advance over the primitive pre-Socratic cosmologies which equated the basic principles of things with a single material element. Plato's formal principles, Aristotle commented, were rightly set apart from the sensible. But he repudiated Plato's development of this insight into a dualism between a realm of change apprehended through the senses and a different realm of eternal forms. Aristotle brought the forms down from their transcendent realm to become the intelligible principles of changing sensible things. The formal remains, for him, the proper object of necessary knowledge, and it is attained by the exercise of a purely intellectual faculty. But it is now grasped in the particular and sensible. It does not, as it did for Plato, Escape into a distinct, supersensible realm. In Aristotle's own system, a dualism remained between what is sensed and what is grasped by reason. But it no longer coincided with a distinction between changeable, created material things and uncreated, timeless, non material forms. Aristotelian forms can function as intelligible principles of material things, and where they do, it is only in conjunction with matter that they can be regarded as existing at all. The mind-body relationship was accordingly transformed in the Aristotelian philosophy. The rational soul became the form of the body, and hence was no longer construed as a presence, in human beings of a divine stuff which really belongs elsewhere. It was the intelligible principle of the body, not its prisoner, and rational knowledge was no longer construed as the soul's escape from the body. What is, for our purposes, significant in Aristotle's transformation of Plato's notion of form is highlighted in Aquinas' Treatment in the Summa Theologica, of the Platonic version of scientific knowledge. On his diagnosis, Plato overreached himself in his desire to save the certitude of intellect from the encroachment of the uncertainty of the senses. By introducing a special sphere of changeless forms as the proper object of scientific knowledge, he removed whatever appertains to the act of intellect from the material world altogether. A self-defeating move, since it excludes knowledge of matter and movement from science. Moreover, Aquinas suggests it seems ridiculous to explain knowledge of sensible substances by knowledge of things altogether different. Plato's mistake, he thinks, was to take too far his idea of knowledge as a kind of similitude. It is not necessary that the form of the thing known be in the knower in the same manner as in the object. It occurs in the intellect under conditions of universality, immateriality and immobility, but from this it does not as Plato thought, follow that the things we understand must have in themselves an existence under the same conditions of the immateriality and immobility. Changing material things are themselves genuinely known, although the soul, through intellect, knows bodies by a knowledge which is immaterial, universal and necessary there is nothing to hinder our having an movable science of movable things. The Aristotelian reproachment of form and matter thus makes it possible for changeable material things to be proper objects of genuine knowledge. But within the Aristotelian framework, this does not change the basic model of knowledge as a contemplation of forms. The form-matter distinction continues to operate, although it now holds within each object. Knowledge still involves the abstraction from matter of formal, intelligible principles, although these are no longer seen as located in a different realm from the sensible. The paradigm of knowledge is still the contemplation by a rational mind of something inherently mind-like, freed of matter. Against the background of these contrasts, within a broader similarity between the Platonic and Aristotelian views of knowledge, we can now see the significance of Bacon. In his thought, the gap between form and matter is completely closed. The split between knowable forms and unknowable matter is repudiated, and with it the model of knowledge as contemplation of the forms. With this change, both the theme of dominance and the male-female distinction enter quite different relations with knowledge. Francis Bacon, Knowledge as the Subjugation of Nature Bacon construed the mind's task in knowledge not as mere contemplation, but as control of nature. This demanded a reconstruction of the proper objects of knowledge, bypassing the distinction between forms and matter. Forms, whether they be transcendent platonic entities or Aristotelian abstract intelligible principles of material things, are appropriate objects of knowledge construed on a contemplative model. But... If knowledge is construed as an instrument of control of nature, its proper objects must be something more readily conceived as manipulable. Bacon's repudiation of the notion of form is thus closely connected with his conception of knowledge as power. The only forms Bacon was prepared to countenance as objects of scientific knowledge had very different relations to matter from those envisaged by either Plato or Aristotle. It is manifest, he wrote in The Advancement of Learning, that Plato, a man of sublime genius who took a view of everything as from a high rock, saw in his doctrine of ideas that forms were the true object of knowledge. But he lost the advantage of this just opinion by contemplating and grasping at forms totally abstracted from matter, and not as determined in it. Bacon's closing the gap between forms and matter went much further than that of Aristotle, amounting in effect to a total obliteration of the distinction. To understand physical nature... We must rather consider matter, its own conformation and the changes of that confirmation, its own action, and the law of this action or motion, for forms are a mere fiction of the human mind, unless you will call the laws of action by that name. The understanding of physical nature became for Bacon an understanding of the patterns in which matter is organised in accordance with mechanical laws. The importance of this change goes beyond the progress of scientific knowledge. In this new picture, the material world is seen as devoid of mind, although as a product of a rational creator it is orderly and intelligible. It conforms to laws that can be understood, but it does not, as the Greeks thought, contain mind within it. Nature is construed not by analogy with an organism, containing its intelligible principles of motion within it, but rather by analogy with a machine, as object of scientific knowledge, it is understood not in terms of intelligible principles informing forming matter, but as mechanism. Bacon thus repudiated the model of knowledge as a correspondence between rational mind and intelligible forms, with its assumption that pure intellect could not distort reality. There are, he thinks, errors which cleave to the nature of the understanding. For however men may assume themselves and admire or almost adore the mind, it is certain that like an irregular glass it alters the rays of things by its figure and different intersections. The sceptics, rather than mistrusting the senses, should have mistrusted the errors and obstinacy of the mind, which refuses to obey the nature of things. The mind itself should be seen as a magical glass, full of superstitions and apparitions. The perceptions of the mind, no less than those of the senses, bear reference to man and not to the universe. Nature cannot be expected to conform to the ideas the mind finds within itself when it engages in pure intellectual contemplation. Knowledge must be painstakingly pursued by attending to nature, and this attending cannot be construed in terms of contemplation. Bacon notoriously used sexual metaphors to express his idea of scientific knowledge as control of a nature in which form and matter are no longer separated. In Greek thought, femaleness was symbolically associated with the non-rational, the disorderly, the unknowable, with what must be set aside in the cultivation of knowledge. Bacon united matter and form, nature as female and nature as knowable. Knowable nature is presented as female and the task of science is to exercise the right kind of male domination over her. Let us establish a chaste and lawful marriage between mind and nature, he writes. The right kind of nuptial dominance, he insists, is not a tyranny. Nature is only to be commanded by obeying her, but it does demand a degree of force. Nature betrays her secrets more fully when in the grip and under the pressure of art than when in enjoyment of her natural liberty. The expected outcome of the new science is also expressed in sexual metaphors, having established the right nuptial relationship properly expressed in a just and legitimate familiarity betwixt the mind and things. The new science can expect a fruitful issue from this furnishing of a nuptial couch for the mind and the universe. From the union can be expected to spring assistance to man and a race of discoveries which will contribute to his wants and vanquish his mysteries. The most striking of these sexual metaphors are in an early, strangely strident work entitled The Masculine Birth of Time. I am come in very truth, says the narrator of that work, leading you to nature with all her children to bind her to your service and make her your slave. My dear, dear boy, what I purpose is to unite you with things themselves in a chaste, holy and legal wedlock, and from this association you will secure an increase beyond all the hopes and prayers of ordinary marriages, to wit, a blessed race of heroes or supermen who will overcome the immeasurable helplessness and poverty of the human race, which cause it more destruction than all giants, monsters or tyrants, and will make you peaceful, happy, prosperous and secure. None of the elements of Bacon's account of knowledge is new. The idea that man has rightful dominion, linked with his capacity for knowledge, over the rest of nature, goes back to the Genesis story, with reference to which Bacon named his great instauration. The proper direction of the arts and sciences, once the distortions of earlier false philosophies have been shed, is supposed to restore to man this rightful dominion lost through his original sin of pride. We have already seen the theme of mind's dominion of matter in Plato's picture of knowledge as involving the subjection of the slave-like body to the soul and the personification of nature as female is no innovation. But Bacon brings all this together in a powerful new model of knowledge. The dominance relation rather than holding between mind and body or within the mind between different aspects of mental functioning, now holds between the mind and nature as the object of knowledge. Knowledge is itself the dominance of nature. Today, Bacon's metaphors for the new science are inevitably seen in the light of contemporary preoccupations with the more negative aspects of science construed as human domination of nature. But from his own perspective, what is salient about the metaphors is quite different. They spring from a vision of the positive virtues, of the new approach to science, the emphasis on sensory observation and experiment, the conviction that only an attentive observation of nature in conjunction with testing through experiments, will yield genuine knowledge. And they express the intellectual ideals which Bacon saw as implicit in this new science. These frequently disconcerting metaphors express two main points. First, that he who would know nature must turn away from mere ideas and abstractions and painstakingly attend to natural phenomena and second, that this painstaking attention cannot be regarded as mere contemplation. Earlier philosophies, Bacon complains, being concerned with mere abstractions only catch and grasp at nature, never seize or detain her. The Aristotelian philosophy has left nature herself untouched and inviolate. Aristotle dissipated his energies in comparing, contrasting, and analysing popular notions about her. Bacon's demystified forms are always determined in matter, and understanding them is inseparable from the control and manipulation of nature. Although the practical and the speculative can, for convenience, be considered a part This theme of the interconnections between knowledge and power is Bacon's main contribution to our ways of thinking about mind's relation to the rest of nature. It is worth looking at in more detail. Philosophy, Bacon complains in the opening passages of The Great Instoration, has come down to us in the person of master and scholar instead of inventor and improver. His own aim is not only the contemplative happiness, but the whole fortunes and affairs and powers and works of men. Man is both minister and interpreter of nature, whence those twin intentions, human knowledge and human power, are really coincident. The speculative and the practical are distinguished from one another only as the search after causes and the production of effects, and these are in fact inseparable. The natural philosopher, as well as being a miner, digging out what lies concealed, also has the office of smelter. To understand forms is to be able to superinduce new natures on matter, which is the labour and aim of human power. Even that part of knowledge which may seem most remote from action, the understanding of forms, is ennobled by its role in releasing human power and leading it into an immense and open field of work. The more we understand, the better our prospects of changing things. And these interconnections between knowledge and power are, for Bacon, so close as to amount to an identity. Truth and utility are equated, though not in a narrowly short-term utilitarian spirit. We should, Bacon urges, look for experiments that will afford light rather than profit confident in the expectation of long-term results from the better understanding of nature. With that proviso understood, the practical and the theoretical are in fact the same. That which is most useful in practice is most correct in theory. The right analogy for the ideal science then is neither the activity of the ants who merely heap up And use their store, nor that of the spiders spinning out their webs, but rather that of the bee who extracts matter from the flowers of the garden and the field, but works and fashions it by its own efforts. Practical results are not only the means to improve human well being, they are the guarantee of truth. The rule of religion, says Bacon, that a man should show his faith by his works holds good in natural philosophy too. Science also must be known by works. It is by the witness of works, rather than by logic or even observation, that truth is revealed and established. Whence it follows that the improvement of man's mind and the improvement of his lot are one and the same thing. End quote. Seeing Bacon's equation of knowledge and power in this wider context highlights something which from our own historical perspective seems strange, that, for Bacon, the linking of knowledge with power was a return from the arrogance of earlier philosophies to intellectual humility... This is what his sexual metaphors are meant to convey. The control of nature through science returns to man the rightful dominion which he lost through the sin of pride. And this dominion is regained precisely through the intellectual humility encapsulated in the new science. For Bacon... The endeavour to renew and enlarge the power and empire of mankind in general over the universe is a sound and noble ambition involving chastity, restraint and respect, not only on the part of nature as chaste wife, but also on the part of her suitors. We have no right to expect nature to come to us. Enough if, on our approaching her with due respect, she condescends to show herself. It is pride that has brought men to such a pitch of madness that they prefer to commune with their own spirits rather than with the spirit of nature. It is through pride, through wanting to be like gods, following the dictates of our own reason, that humanity has forfeited its rightful dominion over nature through true and solid arts. Wherefore, Bacon starts, if there be any humility towards the Creator, if there be any praise and reverence towards His works, if there be any charity towards men and zeal to lessen human wants and suffering, if there be any love of truth, in natural things, any hatred of darkness, any desire to purify the understanding. Men are to be entreated again and again that they should dismiss for a while, or at least put aside those inconstant and preposterous philosophies which prefer thesis to hypothesis, have led experience captive and triumph over the works of God that they should humbly and with a certain reverence draw near to the book of creation, that they should there make a stay, that on it they should meditate, and that then, washed and clean, they should, in chastity and integrity, turn them from opinion. This is that speech and language which has gone out to all the ends of the earth. And has not suffered the confusion of Babel. This men must learn again, and resuming their youth, they must become again as little children and deign to take its alphabet into their hands. But whatever may have been Bacon's conscious intent in describing scientific knowledge in terms of the male female distinction, Its upshot was to build a new version of the transcending of the feminine into the very articulation of the nature of science. This time with the emphasis on the malleability and tractability of matter. Matter is no longer seen as what has to be dominated in order to attain knowledge, but as the proper object of knowledge now construed as the power to manipulate and transform. Malleability, rather than the internal unchangeability of the forms, is a crucial feature of the objects of Baconian knowledge. But this repudiation of the unknowability of matter did not shake the grip of earlier symbolic antitheses between femaleness and the activity of knowledge. On the contrary, it gave them a new and more powerful expression. The transcending of the feminine was not an explicit feature of Greek theories of knowledge in their original form, but it was associated with knowledge through implicit associations of femaleness with matter, which pure intellect was supposed to transcend. Mind's domination of matter, as we have seen, was not explicitly associated with the male-female distinction, but rather with the master-slave relation. Earlier Greek associations of femaleness, which matter did, nonetheless influence the ways in which these theories of knowledge affected the philosophical imagination in later developments of the tradition And in Bacon's metaphors, the control of the feminine became explicitly associated with the very nature of knowledge. How deep is the maleness of Bacon's expression of the nature of the new science? It may seem that it operates at a relatively superficial level. It's true that he unreflectively utilised associations between nature and femaleness which abounded in his cultural tradition. And much of the content of his thought, as we have seen, can be explicated without the sexual metaphors. But the problem cannot be remedied by simply shedding superficial literary embellishments. The intellectual virtues involved being a good in being a good Baconian scientist are articulated in terms of the right male attitude to the feminine, chastity, respect and restraint. The good scientist is a gallant suitor. Nature is supposed to be treated with the respect appropriate to a femininity overlaid with long-standing associations with mystery and awe, however, which is strictly contained. Nature is mysterious, aloof, but, for all that, eminently knowable and controllable. The metaphors do not merely express conceptual points about the relations between knowledge and its objects. They give a male content to what it is to be a good knower. Both kinds of symbolism, the Greek's unknowable matter, to be transcended in knowledge, and Bacon's mysterious but controllable nature, have played crucial roles in the constitution of the feminine in relation to our ideals of knowledge. The theme of the dominance of mind over body, or of intellect over inferior parts of the soul, was developed, as we will see in the next chapter, in medieval versions of character ideals associated with maleness. And Bacon's connection of knowledge with power was developed in later ideas of reason and progress.